1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I am joined by Andrew Rudalevich, um, who I call Andy, um, who is author of By Executive Order, Bureaucratic Management and the Limits of Presidential Power. This was published in 2021 by Princeton University Press. And Andy goes through an understanding, exploration, discussion of um, executive orders And how they actually work um, and come into being, as it were, are birthed um, and and what they reflect in terms of presidential power and the executive as we know it. Um, But I'm going to let Andy talk to us about that. I'd like to welcome Andrew Rudalevich to the New Books Network and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project, because I know you do many projects at once, Andy.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you, Lily. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And uh, um, this is obviously uh, sort of uh, any... I think, extended research project is a labor of love to some degree. This is a particularly archivally drenched labor of love, and it's one that took a while to do. Uh, In a weird way, it was um, conceived as the short version, actually, of a uh, much larger project I've been working on uh, with another scholar, Matt Dickinson up at Middlebury, on the institutional history of the Office of Management and Budget which is a key presidential agency, uh, which has been around for now just over 100 years. And uh, that book, I hope, will be coming out someday. Uh, But long, long ago, when I was in grad school, I started working in the OMB archives uh, to look at the legislative program of presidents, and that turned into a book. Uh, But when I went back to some of those files to look at broader material about the office and how it had developed over time under different presidents, I came across these piles of folders about executive orders, right? Turns out in the general counsel's office of the office management budget, they keep a file on every executive order really that's ever been considered uh, by the president, uh, at least in any serious way. Uh, Most of those get issued, but not all, which is an interesting thing I'd like to, to come back to and it struck me that this was an interesting way of approaching a scholarly puzzle, um, or at least a, uh, a scholarly hole in the literature, I guess I would say, which is that you know, since the late 1990s, there's been this big wave of research uh, on unilateral presidential directives, executive orders being a really important uh, example of those, though there are others. Uh, almost all of it is about outputs, right? The variable that you're looking at is the count of issued orders. This is kind of handy because we have that count. It's a public thing for the most part. The Federal Register has this list and it's kind of official. And so as data go, it's really pretty good, right? We actually know it's there. Uh, But Again, all we have is a count, and so people are trying to figure out: Well, when does a president issue executive orders? What conditions matter? Why does some issue more? Why does some issue fewer? Is it about the economy? Is it about partisanship in Congress? Uh, And so, by the time we got into the early 2000s, Will Howell, who's now at the University of Chicago, wrote a pretty important book uh, called "Power Without Persuasion." It was building on another important book from a couple years earlier by Ken Mayer at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Called with the stroke of a pen, and those two things together really, again, uh, really were really important in in coalescing scholarly interest in the whole notion of unilateralism, which had really not been, uh, you know, the key frontier of presidency research at least for a while. I think if you go back to the 1940s, it was actually pretty important. But uh, in any case, uh, Will Howell had this theory about why orders were issued. It had to do with presidents being uh, unitary actors, they had the first mover advantage versus Congress. So in a sort of game theoretic framework, they were able to shift the policy status quo by issuing an order, and then Congress would try to change it if it wanted to. But Congress, well, you look at Congress most days, it kind of sucks, right? They can't do that much. They have collective action problems. They have all sorts of transaction costs and trying to do anything. Uh, And so you know, Will's point was, well, presidents will act when they think they can get away with it, Uh, when they think Congress won't push back, when they think the courts won't push back. And he put it in this sort of framework of pivotal politics. If your readers are really drenched in the uh, congressional literature of the 1990s, they may remember um, Keith Crable's approach to that. So uh, all of this was to say that Executive orders were seen as very institutional, and presidential behavior was shaped by institutions, but it was shaped by Congress and shaped by the courts. It really had almost nothing to do with the executive branch. The executive branch was a black box. And yet, we know from a whole bunch of literature on public administration, you know, not... um, you know, Not always in the presidency subfield, but in, as I say, uh, public administration, administrative law, other places, that the bureaucracy is a mess, right? We know it's not one thing. We know it doesn't always do exactly what the president wants. And so when I found <clears throat> these files, I thought, well, now we can figure out where executive orders come from you know, are they really unilateral, right? And what does that mean? I mean, I don't think we really think of presidents just sort of sitting down at the desk one day and scribbling something on a on White House letterhead and saying, issue that, though perhaps some of President Trump's tweets came close. Um, that said, you know, we we do think of executive orders as, you know, capital E, capital O, executive orders, they're presidential. And they are to the degree that they have the president's signature on them, but they are actually, as I discovered, as I dug into these files, very much products of bureaucracy. A lot of them, in fact, a majority of them come primarily from the bureaucracy, not from the White House, not from a centralized staff, but rather from a more decentralized, broader executive branch. and turns out that presidents also have collective action problems. Presidents also have to face transaction costs. And so one of my questions is, can we measure those? Can we get a sense of those? How can presidents actually manage this big executive branch? How can they achieve policy change that we will later call unilateral in what's actually a very multilateral world?
1: And I, I was just talking with my students today about um, Harding's quote, that he wanted to reign and not rule. Um, and this is kind of the the structure that we often think about with regard to the power of the presidency, right? That the president has this capacity to make things happen. Of course, Wilson's complaint was that the president couldn't make things happen. Um, and And the discussion, as you say, with regard to executive orders, is they seem like that is this kind of regal or monarchical move and its title is even kind of that way. Um, and yet they aren't that, um, can you explain for those who are not drenched in the science of pep, um, presidents and executive politics section, uh, exactly what an executive order is and how it's different from, say, congressional legislation or other moves by the executive?
0: Okay, well, so the short version, um, and you're right to head off the long version, is that an executive order is an order to people in the executive branch by the president to do something. So it's not an order to, you know, woman on the street. It's not an order to Congress. It's an order to someone who works theoretically for the president. Uh, And therefore, you know, it has to be authorized, the president has to have the power to issue that order, either from the constitution or from a law that delegated him that power. And so, you know, that's not to say that executive orders can't be really important. Obviously, you know, if the president, you know, issues an executive order that, uh, shapes oil imports, right. Um, or something that, uh, says that in order to do business with the federal government, you have to have a a minimum wage of a certain amount, right? That order is technically to the people who write the contracts uh, in the federal government with private sector entities. But in fact, obviously that's going to have a big impact. You know, if you want that contract, you have to change your practices and you're probably going to change them for all your employees, not just the ones working on federal contracts, Uh, housing discrimination orders, uh, um, and of course, you know, orders that are linked to the military, like uh, Franklin Roosevelt's infamous executive order, uh, basically authorizing the creation of zones from which Japanese Americans would be physically removed during World War II on the West Coast, right? Those are, again, they're two executive branch personnel, but they have big impacts or can have. Some are much less important, right? They deal with uh, procedural matters inside the bureaucracy um, or, you know, even create uh a new seal, right? Uh, something you can put on your OMB T-shirt, um, you know, for a given agency. And so, you know, again, they vary wildly, but they do have this sort of idea behind them of being fast, right? President Obama said, we can't wait. Therefore, I'm going to issue all kinds of executive orders. And they do have a sort of uh, signing ceremony uh, grandiosity to them. President Trump especially really loved this, right? He would get his Sharpie and write his name in big letters and hold it up for the camera. Um, that was sp- you know, a little unusual, but the but the idea is the same, right? You sign the uh, you sign the order and stuff happens, right? With a stroke of a pen. Again, that was Ken Mayer's book. It just happens. You don't need legislation. Now, of course, you do need legislation uh, before that, right, to give you the authority to act in a certain area. And often, what you're doing as president is telling an agency, you know, Congress passed this law, and here's how I want you to interpret it. Here's how I want you to implement it. Now, if people, you know, either in the private sector or perhaps even in Congress get angry at the way that the president is doing that. You know, there are ways they can push back, Um, but it is effectively a means of controlling bureaucratic behavior, right? And often, you know, using existing law uh, and pushing it in new ways.
1: And in terms of... (laughs) The role of the president as being the person who has to direct the bureaucracy, has to direct the executive branch, an executive order is essentially an arm of the capacity of the president to do that.
0: Right. So, I mean, the president's got, you know, three-ish million employees, right? There's a lot of federal employees out there. This is, you know, before we even get to the armed services and so forth. Um, and you know what are they all doing right They obviously have their own mandates in the law to act in certain ways and carry out certain functions. Um, but in terms of presidents wanting to you know change the way say the Clean Air Act is implemented or uh, you know we saw with President Biden OSHA, Right, uh, he wanted uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to require people to be vaccinated at large workplaces. Now that got shot down in the courts, right? And um, uh, you know, but nonetheless, you have this desire of the president to move policy forward. You've got this big executive branch; it's grown dramatically over the last hundred-ish years, and so there's more opportunity for presidents to act um, because Congress. Is quite gridlocked and increasingly so. Uh, they have motive to act, and of course they have means. They have executive orders. They have other kinds of directives. You know, uh, think the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Technically, that's a proclamation and not executive order, but they're all kind of in the same broad category of again unilateral presidential directives, which is
1: it was an early form of a tweet.
0: Yes, <laughs> you could put it that way. A little more, uh went over the character limit, I think. Um, but that's uh, what Lincoln gets for spelling out, you know, dates and things like that. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a way I think of, of managing the bureaucracy. And of course, the bureaucracies out there, they want policy change too, and they're gonna propose things to the president. I kind of uh, conceive uh, in the theory chapter of this book of sort of a presidential marketplace where people are trying to sell him stuff to uh to put out there you know some of it might come from his campaign promises but some of it's just been sitting around they're waiting for a president who's interested you have white house staffers in this market too um And so you've got this sort of, uh, you know, everybody's sort of waving their idea at the president. The president's got to figure out, are these good ideas? Do I want to do them? Uh, And this is where OMB comes in, right? And why all these files are in their archives is that back in the 1930s, even a little bit before, uh, OMB, which was then called the Bureau of the Budget, B.O.B., was charged by Franklin Roosevelt with being the... uh, instrument of central clearance, as it's become known. Right, Any executive order has to be submitted to OMB. They send it out to other actors in the executive branch to see what they think, kind of like a peer review process. Comes back to OMB, they decide whether this is a plausible idea or not, and they will then Send it to the president for signature. Actually, there's another step along the way, which is to the Justice Department uh, for legal vetting, just to make sure that it actually is within the president's powers to do this. Form and legality is the uh, the phrase they use. So, um, central clearance actually is a really important institutional continuity across presidents of all kinds of parties and personalities, and you know, it provides protection to the president. And in fact, that phrase is used frequently, sometimes in OMB memos, sometimes by observers. And think about it, if executive orders are simply sort of this offshoot of presidential unity, why on earth would the president need to be protected from the executive branch, right? So you already get the sense that there's more going on there. And so, central clearance gives the president sort of a, almost a cost benefit analysis. Um, And sometimes, you know, the president might decide, well, this is costly. I want to go ahead anyway. Uh, Sometimes these things will get shot down. And sometimes even maybe most dramatically, the president himself will have an idea for an executive order, and it will go through this process and it won't get issued. Right? So I have some couple of fun examples of that, including a written order by Jimmy Carter. It says, you know, you know, Give me an order, make it strong. And no order ever happens. So it is this classic sense of Neustadt, right? Uh, Richard Neustadt's presidential power, where at the very beginning he talks about uh, Harry Truman kind of making fun of Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower is supposedly going to be sitting at his desk thinking about uh, his army days, wistfully saying, Do this, do that. And then Truman, again in Newstat's telling, just comments that nothing will happen. And Ike is going to get really peeved. Um, now, something usually does happen, right? But, but it's possible, you know, for the president having proposed an idea to get the kind of feedback that will convince the president that maybe it's not a good idea, or even if he still thinks it's a good idea, that there's just too much resistance. And so, bureaucratic resistance turns out not in the sort of, you know. Again, the sort of headline Trump fashion, you know, where you've got people writing op eds about how they're resisting, but rather just ordinary organizational feedback and pushback against ideas that people out in the executive branch think are bad ideas for whatever reason. And so a lot of orders, as I hinted at, actually don't come to fruition. There's a lot of proposals out there that wind up just dying somewhere along the way. And many others take a long time to issue. So, again, the, this sort of idea that presidents just sort of sit down, issue an order, it happens immediately. You know, it may be faster than legislation, though not always, but it's often going to be subject to a lot of debate, a lot of deliberation, even inside the executive branch. And so, you know, you have Congress, you have the courts. Yes, they matter to presidential decision making, but the executive branch matters a lot. And I give more stories than anybody really wants to read about some of the examples of that process.
1: And and one of the things that you're doing and that you talked about this already is that you, you know, as you say, you can, you can quantify how many executive orders have been issued. You can sort of peg them to, you know, this, this agency or this department or that department. Um, but what you're doing in the book is actually going backwards to sort of see the origin of where an executive order generates from, um, and, and, you know, how it comes to be. And so it's, it's less of this kind of, um, even imagined space that a president, you know, casts, I will make this happen. Um, and, and, you know, good, but that's how we think about, the in the in the imagined space of what a president does with his or her day is you know i'm gonna make this happen um but executive orders seem to be the way that quote presidents make this happen and yet even there the executive orders themselves don't always happen and and so explain a little bit about how how they do or don't happen
0: (laughs) Sure. Well, yeah, so this is the origin story, right? This is the prequel to the entire uh, executive order literature. Um, and I only regret I don't have the entire Marvel universe, you know, to uh, illustrate it with. Um, it is. Yeah, there's a, a whole, you know, a whole bunch of orders that are coming into to OMB and being sort of, you know, you know, waved around in this marketplace. Um, as I say, there's a, a process in place by which these orders are kind of peer reviewed. Uh, you know, there, there's a sort of it's all pretty routinized at this point. Um, so again, you go into these uh, specific files that are linked to an individual order or proposed order, I should say, and. You know, you see the, uh, you know, the memo that whatever lawyer is tasked with it at OMB sends out to all the agencies that he thinks uh, might be interested in this. Uh, They get comments back. Now, sometimes the comments are, why did you send this to us? This is, we have, we don't care. Uh, But often they get back, you know, pretty detailed feedback. Page six, really bad. Are you really going to let the Treasury Department get away with that? Um, and then there are, you know, others that are, you know, you know, just kill this order. This is illegal. It's a bad idea. It's badly written. Um, you know, occasionally there's praise, a lot of, you know, sort of no objection. Um, you know, we don't, we're not in love with it, but we really don't care that much. A lot of it, of course, from the agency's point of view is making sure that other agencies aren't trying to steal their turf, um, and that the process for. Uh, you know, if a new advising process is being set up, or a new task force, or you know, they may point out uh, potential difficulties in implementation given other pieces of the law that the drafter might not have thought of. So all of this again winds up, um, you know, and you get sometimes you know, inch or two-inch thick folders. Sometimes it's just a few pages. And you know, I was trying to figure out, you know. A few things, one of which was what under what conditions will presidents sort of rely on their centralized White House staff to draft these orders? Under what conditions are they likely to rely on the wider bureaucracy? I wanted to measure how long this takes, uh, generally, and the uh, the short answer, the mean uh, for the sample of orders that I have, uh, which is something like 515 orders over uh, about 68 years, I think. is 75 days or so, right? So two and a half months for the average order to be released. I think the median is a little less than that. Um, but some of them go on for years and years. And then as I, I said, uh, some of them don't happen at all. Um, and there are all these sort of choke points. Uh, again, maybe the the primary one is uh, dissent inside the executive branch. Where, you know they just can't get buy-in OMB really tries to negotiate these things through sometimes you know uh, a director of OMB will get involved uh, personally and sometimes you'll have memos and they're going why why is she doing this this is t- this is a waste of time um, and sometimes there I have a long uh, uh, narrative in the the last chapter, actually, which is about implementation of executive orders, uh, but dealing with a series of orders that were issued about coyotes in uh, the American West, especially uh, on uh, federal land. And ranchers who had uh, sheep grazing on federal land, of course, were very interested in killing all those coyotes. And environmentalists said, you know, if they're eating a few sheep, that's your problem, right? This is—they're coyotes. They're this is wild animals. We should be protecting them. Uh, and so there's you know ten-ish years of subsequent orders as both sides keep lobbying successive presidents. Um, and so ultimately, President Reagan says, "Yeah, kill all the coyotes. I don't care." But you know, there's a long period up to that, and some of the uh, internal disputes are hilarious, actually. Um, so generally, yeah, I mean, intra-executive dissent is the main way in which orders uh, fail to to come to be. Uh, OMB, uh, of course, itself, you know, will sometimes anticipate that kind of dissent. Sometimes it will find its own issues. Sometimes it will say, you know, this shouldn't be an executive order. Maybe it should just be a press release. You know, maybe you know, couldn't you just call up the department head and say, you know, hey, do me a favor. Instead of putting it in executive order form, right? There is a certain, you know, gravity to an executive order as they see it, um, and you know, presidents can override that. They can issue, ultimately, they can issue an order if they really want to. Um, and you have some, at least anecdotal, uh, cases from especially the Trump years where some stuff that you wouldn't expect to see rhetorically in an executive order, you know, get into the mix. Um, that's a, a, another, actually, it's been a spin-off research project looking at some of that. I can happily come back to that. Uh, but yeah, about 12%, interestingly, at least of my sampled. Now, I, I should note that my unissued orders are not a random sample. So the issued orders, I have you know, a good idea of what was issued. I know the universe of issued orders, I don't know the universe of unissued orders. Best estimate is about one in five sort of serious orders does not get issued. So that's a pretty high death rate, if you will, right? Um, And that's derived both from what I found in the archives, but also from some interviews with uh, general counsel uh, staff at OMB over a couple different administrations. But about 12%, you know, die, they are approved by the bureaucracy, they're approved by OMB, they're approved by the Justice Department, they go to the White House, and they're not issued. The president decides not to do it. Um, And there's one interesting example that comes to mind from the Johnson administration, Lyndon Johnson, i don't go quite so far back to the Andrew Andrew Johnson administration, (laughs) though he issued executive orders too, Um, and they weren't great. Uh, But anyway, the... uh, Lyndon Johnson, you know, they're trying to push through. Uh, his White House staff is really on board with trying to get through some language uh, that would basically, again, shape contracting by the federal government in such a way that you would only give contracts to companies that were accessible to low income populations, which would often mean, you know, not out on, you know, whole suburban. You know research parks you could only reach by highway you know you had to take into account whether there was housing nearby transportation nearby right really it was part of the civil rights agenda of the administration broadly though it wasn't framed quite that way externally um, and you have all this back and forth and ultimately you have a, a note from the president back to i think it was harry mcpherson who was uh, one of lyndon johnson's staffers and really invested in this that basically says no, sorry, you know maybe Nixon will want to do it. You know by that time we had gotten to the very end of the Johnson administration. Of course Nixon did not want to do it. Um, intriguingly, though, there is a uh, a little later OMB itself revived this because Nixon, of course, was getting hammered on civil rights issues, and OMB said, hey, you know there was this idea, and maybe we should do it now. And uh, uh, the White House said no, but. You know these ideas don't always die, and that's sort of an interesting case too. Sometimes they they do linger. Uh, interesting case, for example, of uh, the Bush administration, George H. W. Bush. Uh, there was a push towards the end of his term by the Department of Health and Human Services to ban smoking on federal property, including federal buildings. Right, and, you know. But, you of course, Lily, are far too young to remember the 1980s. But you know, I uh, you know remember I've, I've going flown into. On those airplanes. <laughs> I, I, I've been in the smoking section
1: on the airplanes. I'm not. I'm not that young.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was smoke everywhere. People can't quite conceive of that now. Um, you know, but so that was just sort of a thing you could do. Uh, and interestingly, right? There's actually well, it's not surprising, I guess, that there's a lot of pushback. You know, from federal employees, from unions, actually. Um, some of the unions seem to actually really want to defend the right to smoke. Others want to make it an issue for collective bargaining. So if they give it up, they can get something else. Um, in any case, there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of discussion. The secretary of HHS is gung-ho for this. And again, it gets all the way to George H.W. Bush's desk, and he decides, now we're just going to let it go. Um, but then comes Bill Clinton, right? And it's dead Except it's not dead because lower level careerists in HHS, you know, say, ah, well, Clinton, he's a, you know, he's into regulation. Let's see what we can get them to do. And they get, uh, I guess it was Donna Shalala, right, who was the uh, secretary of HHS then. She goes on board. And even then, though, it takes like three more years. Uh, And Elena Kagan, of course, now Justice Kagan, who was on Clinton's domestic policy staff, she was an awesome note taker. Um, I guess that's how you get to be a Supreme Court justice. Uh, she, so she has a really useful set of files in the Clinton Library uh, files. So these are separate from the uh, from the OMB ones. And again, wherever I could, I would try to triangulate information from presidential libraries, from private uh, papers, and you know, obviously from secondary sources as well. But Kagan, you know, there's actually this is a small but but uh, maybe telling thing. You know, after they finally issue this, right? Something like six years after it's been first proposed, uh, she actually uh, has this list of, um, you know, uh, of talking points, of frequently asked questions. We would call them now. Right? A white paper that, you know, wh- whoever goes out to defend this policy is going to be able to read. And one of the po- points that's proposed is, why did this take so long? And she just X's it out. <laughs> We're not <laughs> even going to talk about that. Uh, I don't want to think about this anymore. Uh, and so, yeah, these are take a while. There's a lot of uh, dissent and discussion and even things that, you know, you might think a president would be able to push through, you know, can just take a while. And it gives, uh, again, this insight. That's why the the subtitle is about bureaucratic politics i actually uh, my original working title for the whole book was called bargaining with the bureaucracy um and i still kind of like that it turned into a chapter title uh but uh the good people at princeton said nobody will buy a book called bargaining with the bureaucracy you have to have executive order in the title they weren't wrong, probably, um, but it is kind of about that, right? It's about the bargaining with the bureaucracy, and presidents are not, you know, necessarily passive in this. I don't mean to imply that they're helpless, right? Indeed, you know, my sort of vantage point is thinking about how can presidents get the most out of this huge, far-flung bureaucracy, uh, but also recognizing that it is uh, what George Kraus in uh, a terrific book now 20 years ago probably, called a two-way street, right? Both the uh, president and the bureaucracy are driving uh, sometimes at each other, uh, sometimes parallel to each other, and you have to look at both as they interact with each other.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're
0: doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
1: And, and in, <clears throat> in terms of the work that you're doing in this book on sort of the, the generative nature of these executive orders... Um, There's often, again, this is sort of where the public interacts with them because they don't see a lot of this um, going on at OMB and the sort of vetting part um, or the conversations in the bureaucracy. All that the public sees is if there is an executive order, you know, then it it has to be implemented and, and who's in charge of it. And you start the book by, you know, sort of capturing those early days of the Trump administration with the executive order. Um, and the travel ban. Um, and one of the points that you make in using that example is that there wasn't any of the backstory. Um, can you explain why that particular example helps to elucidate the whole rest of the book?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is the exception that proves the rule, I think. Um, we all know that executive orders are important, uh, but we. What we haven't studied as much is that the executive branch is important to executive orders, and I thought the travel ban story, uh, besides being a kind of a, a great hook, um, you know, does illustrate that nicely. It's you know, so you know, just to remind listeners that you know, about a week after he took office in January 2017, President Trump issued an executive order. Uh, that became quickly known as the travel ban because it was trying to implement promises he had made during the campaign uh, to ban the entry of terrorists into the country. Um, terrorists, as they showed up in the definition of the uh, executive order, in fact, they were people from a number of Muslim-majority countries. Um so, yeah, there are lots of questions. One is whether the president has power to issue such an order. Um, and, you know, a number of years later, of course, the Supreme Court ruled on a successor to that executive order and ruled that the president did indeed have power under the Immigration and Nationality Act to issue it. Um, but <clears throat> that order was written, as I say, issued just about a week after. You have to go a little further back, remember that President Trump had fired his transition team just after winning the election. Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, had been put in charge of the transition. He had sort of run a very traditional transition, collecting all kinds of ideas. How would we translate your campaign promises into executive orders or legislative proposals? Here are the staff we think you should hire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Remember people made fun of Mitt Romney's binders full of women, well, you know, Most transitions do just that. They have binder after binder of stuff, Um, and so the, uh, you know, that was all thrown away. I mean, Christie in his memoir says literally dumped in the dumpster outside of Trump Tower, Uh, and Mike Pence uh, took charge of the transition. But, you know, the they had cut down amazingly on the amount of time they had to prepare any of the substance they had uh, seconded a number of congressional staff to kind of work on drafting executive orders or a lot of them going around uh, but you know these weren't necessarily folks who had a lot of deep background in you know, the the substantive areas and how, what was going to need to happen for this to actually work once it was issued. And Homeland Security and the State Department and, you know, even the Defense Department, you know, there's a lot of people out there who were living with this, living with immigration, how it works. You know, if you just think about the, the physical process of arriving at an airport, right, what actually happens. Um, and so you know, none of those people were consulted. They were basically told this is going to happen. Um, there's some colorful language that was used to describe their sort of being uh, blindsided by this, including John Kelly, who at that time was the Secretary of Health and, uh, of Homeland Security. Sorry, um, of course, later White House Chief of Staff. But you know, there's uh, basically nobody is asked, you know, how to do this, and the normal process where they would, you know. Have OMB vet the bill, do central vet, vet the executive order proposal. Sorry, they vet bills also, uh, but vet the order proposal and get all the input from the bureaucracy about how it could work and how it would actually be successfully implemented. None of that happened, right? So President Trump issues the order, and you know you'll remember maybe you know people started showing up at the airports to protest because it was seen as uh, discriminatory. Um, but leaving that aside, right? whatever the merits of it, it didn't work because you know, they hadn't thought through you know, what might seem like obvious questions, but are not necessarily obvious, in, uh, except in hindsight. You know, what about green card holders? Right? What if you are not a US citizen, but you do have a green card? Are you allowed to come in? The answer was maybe, no, wait, yes. Uh, you know, what if you're already in the air when the order is issued? Right, uh, what are the people literally, you know, working, you know, at the uh, customs little toll booths at an international airport? What is their actual guidance? What are they supposed to do with all the different categories of people who might pop out? Uh, you know, there are exceptions built into the executive order, but would they be uh, authorized? Who had the power to do that? Uh, Basically, it was a mess. Uh, in fact, to the degree that the uh, the acting attorney general, who was an Obama holdover, actually said she wouldn't enforce it. Uh, she thought it was unconstitutional um, because of the discriminatory uh, potential uh, given who the president had picked out to ban. And so uh, she was fired uh, quickly, uh, which is the president's right, uh, but it did highlight again sort of just the chaos. Um, and quickly a second order was issued and then ultimately a third, uh, and the third one is actually the one, which by the way, had a lot of bureaucratic input. The third one is the, uh, the version that went to the Supreme Court and was upheld ultimately. So, so that's in there um, to show in a sense, you know, why does the president need the executive branch? You know, President Ken sit down and sort of you know, there were cartoons at the time of Steve Bannon, the president's aide, you know, sitting at a bar stool with crayons, right, writing executive orders. I mean, that was sort of the image that was given. Um, indeed, some of the, you know, President's Republican allies on Capitol Hill, you know, were very insulting. Lindsey Graham, right? This is before he stopped insulting President Trump. Um, but he was on board with, you know, he was Really, you know, scathing about the process and the the skills used. He said it was like a third grader wrote it in crayon, um, you know. And so, yeah, there was this sort of sense that you know the executive branch could have helped, right? You want to ban people? We'll help you do it, right? These are not people who are necessarily partisan. OMB is explicitly nonpartisan. It supports, it's full of career civil servants who help presidents achieve what they want to achieve. Uh, they will argue about the substance in the politics, but if a president wants to do something, they will help them find the best way to do it. And so that was ignored, and it had, you know, kind of catastrophic results, both for people who were actually dealing with it on the ground, but also, you know, for perceptions of the Trump administration. Obviously, there are plenty of people who already uh, didn't like the administration but you know uh, you know there was some question about whether you know this this businessman could come in and reorganize the government along the lines of effective private sector management and that got a a, a quick blow to that reputation so it really was a um, you know again it, uh, just sort of the the uh, the shadow case, if you will. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a, there's the, I'm trying to think of the right social scientific uh, jargon for it, but effectively, yeah, I think the exception that proves the rule is the right way to put it. It really was uh, a place where the normal process was not followed and it had bad results, both substantively and politically for the president.
1: And, and it also, I mean, it's, it's such a a stark example because it, it was like, okay, we're going to stop these people from coming into the country, but how does that work? Right. That's always the question I ask my students about, like, how does the executive branch work? Does the president go around executing the law and what does that look like? Um, And executive orders are a kind of similar component in terms of like the president wants something to happen. They get elected on the basis of saying that something is going to happen and they're going to do it in this way, according to existing law but how does it actually function? And you have this example of like, the problem was how to implement it. And as you talk about in the book, the implementation is important, but the, the backstory is also anticipation of how to implement, which goes to this question also of the power of the executive branch, I think. Um, and so can you explain a little bit about How the executive orders themselves as situated um, before they come to be, before they come to fruition, as well as what the president wants is a kind of demonstration of some of the power associated with the branch.
0: Yeah, well, I think um, to your first point, the implementation is very much something that's argued about, you know, during the formulation process. And it's a lot of the feedback that comes back from the agencies saying, well, you could do this, but it's not going to work because of ABC. Or why are you giving it to that organization to implement? Because they don't know what they're doing. Um, Sometimes they say we should do it. Sometimes they don't want to do it. Right, um, and they, or you know, sometimes they'll say, "You have, do you know that there already is this organization created three presidencies ago that could do this?" You know, there's a lot of institutional memory. Part of the power of the executive branch is not just knowing where the bodies are buried, um, knowing what has been tried before, what has worked and not worked. Um, you know, it's true. I think that the bureaucracy generically is risk averse, um, but nonetheless, there's a lot of expertise there. It's the whole point right, of having, uh, you know, a career civil service really is to protect that expertise and to, you know, make sure that it sticks around for more than one term of a president. Um, and so, yeah, part of that power really is about, you know, knowledge in a way. And, and again, presidents, it's not infallible and presidents may wish to do something new that the, you know, careerists in an agency are really set against and they have to use some of their you know drive, you will get, you know, again, White House staffers propose, you know, plenty of executive orders themselves, and some of them are trying to to really reshape the way that uh, bureaucratic behavior occurs. Um, so interestingly, the longest issuance periods, right? If something is just delegated to the bureaucracy completely or kept completely in-house, um, there's a, a, a phrase in uh, transaction cost economics, the make or buy question, right? Should you make this thing in-house or should you buy it somewhere else? And I adapt that somewhat, right? So should you make it in the White House or should you buy it from, I don't know, the Department of Labor? Um, and so, you know, the, the ones that take the longest are the ones that are a mix of the two, right? Where you have, uh, you know, maybe a a preponderant role or a lead role played by the wider executive bureaucracy or by the White House staff, but there's a mix and there's a lot of conversation going on. The ones that don't take nearly as long are the ones where it is just sort of, you know, either fully delegated or fully centralized. Um, But I do think, you know, one good predictor of uh, either a slow issuance process or indeed of, something not being issued at all is the number of agency jurisdictions that a given order crosses right and as you would uh, expect maybe the president you know centralizes that process more because they need to right there needs to be some kind of centralized process to keep hold of all these different interests across the bureaucracy substantive complexity though is another example of something that takes longer uh, more complex order, takes longer. Interestingly, uh, there's some uh, data collated uh, via survey by uh, David Lewis uh, at Vanderbilt and some of his co-authors. And they actually asked uh, different agencies, you know, what agencies are smart, right? Which ones are actually competent and which ones are powerful, even if they're not competent? (laughs) Um, And, you know, you see some interesting findings. For example, you know, um, you know, those that have a, uh, um, you know, if you are an influential agency, it turns out that you're more likely to get your order issued, uh, even if. Now again, that influence is measured by others in the executive branch. It's not necessarily, you know, the president thinks you're powerful, but it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting measure, and uh, it does predict issuance versus non-issuance. Uh, the. Uh, idea of a competent agency, the agency's reputation for expertise actually uh, was one measure that helped predict whether uh, something was delegated to the bureaucracy rather than done in-house. So uh, in a way, you'd expect to see that, but I was kind of tickled that it worked out uh, in the statistical analysis because... You know, I think it suggests that what uh, what Lewis et al are getting at in their measure does have some some bite, right? It does, it is getting at what they wanted to. And interestingly, those things are different. You know, reputation and influence, or so reputation for expertise, reputation for influence, uh, turn out to be predicting different things. So, um, so yeah, but that. Uh, just to circle back to your question, you know, it does suggest that there are influencing uh, influencers. Maybe that's not exactly the word these days. Uh, but those in the bureaucracy who have influenced bigger departments, State Department, Defense Department, right? They're big actors here, um, and you know, a lot of what's going on, you know, in this process is the president having to to manage. You know, not being able to say do this, do that, but rather to sort of uh, to work out a, a deal, um, which again is not our traditional view of the president, who we think of as chief executive, sitting on top of this hierarchy. And while again that's true on an org chart, but in terms of day to day life, it doesn't always. Um, Come true. Coming back to the travel ban, there's a, a Trump tweet that I quote, uh, where he's complaining about the revisions that the Justice Department wound up doing to that first travel ban. Now, this is he—he's complaining on Twitter about an executive order that he signed, right? It's, that's an interesting uh, <laughs> commentary in itself.
1: But I mean, this was unfortunately, I think, par for the course in a lot of ways with regard to Trump, and he was very critical of the executive agencies of which, for which he was responsible. Um, and, and so I, you know, I, I think that, um, as you, as you note throughout the book, the complexities of the executive branch mean that in fact, you don't necessarily change things on a dime. Um, and and that can be frustrating. I think it's often frustrating for presidents who want to change something. And that's why the executive orders come in. But then, as you note, it it can take years.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's certainly this is not only about Trump. In fact, Trump's orders are not in my data. I don't have archival access to, you know, well, will we ever have archival access to the Trump White House is another question uh, that the headlines are, uh, you know. Contemplating now, uh, maybe under the the Trump w- the plumbing wing of the Trump uh, archives. I don't know. Well, um. Anyway, th- you know, you see this dynamic as you suggest across lots of different presidencies. You know, every president complains about the bureaucracy, um, and that's you know a constant. They want to do things, but they can't always do them fast. They can't always do them exactly as they would like to do them, you know, and that's not always just about the president of the bureaucracy. Congress obviously has a huge say, interest groups have a big say, often the courts have a big say. and of course, you know, the bureau, bureaucracy itself has been created in law with certain missions, certain tasks, certain things they're not supposed to do. And so if the president says do this, but this is something the bureaucracy thinks is illegal, right? You're going to get some pushback. You should get some pushback. We should hope for that. Um, that said, you know, we do also, you know, want some kind of accountability in our policymaking. We think elections ought to count for something and so you know this the final chapter comes back a little bit to you know this broader question that has been you know pondered kicked around for a hundred plus years now about you know how much political control should there be of the bureaucracy how much do we value expertise how much do we value you know uh, somebody who's actually elected making decisions about the direction of policy you know again what is the uh you know Ideal combination of that, right? Woodrow Wilson, you know, back in the sort of dawn of the administrative state, was writing about a dichotomy between politics and administration, and basically the administration, the bureaucracy, was just going to do in the most efficient way possible whatever the political actors of the day wanted them to do. Uh, others, you know, quickly pointed out that you know any kind of decision making is, is political in the broadest sense, and so you that dichotomy is. Uh, a little bit false. And so the debate is certainly a live one. And I would note, by the way, that President Trump over the course of his term, I don't know if he personally got better at this, but certainly this uh, sort of second wave of appointees that he put in place, you know, got better at getting what they wanted out of bureaucratic behavior. Um, you know, President Trump continued to rail against the deep state, but You know, really, he should have been writing love poems to the deep state. That is how almost all of his policy got implemented. Look at immigration policy. It's all, you know, executive action. None of it is legislative. You know, the big tax cuts in 2017, uh, we could look at the criminal justice bill. There's a handful of things that were passed that he pushed for legislatively. But, you know, the things that we're going to remember, I think, about Trump administration's impact on policy are going to be because. You know his White House or his appointees figured out a way to achieve things, even bizarrely, right? I mean, um, you know the uh, the the first impeachment of the president was about you know holding up money to Ukraine, right? And it was done by figuring out in OMB, right, how to actually do that. You know, legally they argued. Not a, not everybody agrees it was legal, but. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, they they looked to ways. How can we implement this? The National Emergency Act uh, uh, invocation regarding the southern border. How can we work through existing channels, right? And you know, again, you may not like the policy, but you know, these were these pathways of achieving policy implementation were figured out. You know, again, um, not through some grand legislative signing ceremony, but through mostly careerists working to let their political bosses know how they could do something they wanted to do.
1: And, and again, this goes to sort of our understanding of the complexity of the implementation of executive power or a- executive agenda by a president, um, because the president's influence on Congress or with Congress is often, particularly in these days of very narrow majorities, often limited. Um
0: yeah, implementation I think is the next frontier of this kind of research and I waved my hand at it in the last chapter. Uh, I had originally hoped to have a whole chapter on implementation, but the data is hard to get, right? It's um, you know, those executive order files end when it's issued for the most part, right? So it is the the pre the prequel, but I don't know we know so we knew a lot originally about sort of the top of the hill where, you know, the orders issued. And now we know, I hope a little more about the, you know, the left side of that slope as we, you know, see the policy being rolled up the hill. But what about the other side, the implementation side? We know a little bit, but not a lot. We certainly don't know things systematically. Uh, There are a few scholars who have been working on this. Um, Josh Kennedy comes to mind at the Georgia Southern, Michelle Belko at the University of Houston. Um, I know that uh, actually the, the folks uh George Washington who work on the regulatory state are interested in pursuing this um you know the uh so it's just a question of you know again trying to think of data and getting at access right we don't always uh, it's not always transparent what's going on in the executive branch and so these you know we there's a whole Wave of people trying to figure out whether signing statements, for example, made any difference to the way laws were implemented. It turns out to be really hard to do systematically. I think uh, implementation of executive orders, likewise, but we do have some, you know, uh, certainly anecdotal. Uh, evidence of slippage, Bill Clinton actually uh, complained in an interview a few years after his presidency, how, you know, yeah, you can issue orders, but you never know if they're implemented. Periodically, OMB will have these sort of project implementation, you know, where they try to figure out things. Um, As I say, my, my story about coyotes is actually an implementation story, because what it suggests is a little bit of, you know, policy feedback you know, in the way that we think of it in the broader policy literature, uh, mostly with legislation, but here, you know, the first executive order about coyotes is issued. It sets off a frenzy of debate, comes back, another executive order, another executive order, another executive order, right? And all of the time, you know, so you have, you know, the, um, again, if you think about the president as first mover, while well, he was first second third mover um, you know actually the president ford who issues two of these if he has any interest at all in coyotes i have yet to discover it independently but he's getting it's getting pushed at him right from other actors and you know they are shaped again by the prior actions sometimes of prior presidents and so You know, you do have this sort of interesting sequencing of events. Um, Sharice Thrower has written a little bit about how how the durable executive orders are. And I did do just a very quick and dirty statistical analysis that suggested that um, orders that did involve more deliberation, i.e. that took more time to issue, actually lasted longer in her data anyway. It's not. I, I'm not going to claim that as a, a rock solid finding as yet, but it was interesting. Um, Josh Kennedy, who I mentioned, he has, uh, in a case study kind of analysis, uh, found that again orders that are created with more buy-in from uh, different stakeholders through the formulation process, you know, again tend to be more successful in their implementation. And he looks at a few Bush, uh, George W. Bush era orders. Um, to trace that through.
1: And this makes a certain amount of sense given the legislative process as well. It's kind of a mirror to that as well.
0: Yeah, it does. And so, you know, the regulatory process, of course, is supposed to mirror the legislative process with, you know, public comment and feedback and so forth. We don't usually think of executive orders that way, but, you know, it it may be uh, valuable to do though, to do so.
1: And, And it is a little bit of the president acting kind of as a legislator, but not really. I don't, I don't want to be accused of something <laughs> well, that's not
0: true. You don't want to violate the separation oh. of powers. My God, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, uh, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, obviously, you know, one thing we've seen, you know, again, given gridlock in Congress, um, you know, I think it was even 20 years ago that Martha Derthick uh, observed that, you know, a lot of the policymaking action is not in making new law, but in coming up with new meanings for old law. And I think that is even more true now than when she was observing it, because uh, you know ultimately that means right that these executive directives are again trying to guide the bureaucracy, uh, you know sometimes in kind of zigzag directions. If you think of the environmental field, you know a lot of this is in regulation rather than an executive order per se. Um, but you know you go. From the Bush administration to the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration, they have very different ideas of what you know powers are available to the president or what policies should be followed under the Clean Air Act, right? The Clean Air Act hasn't been touched for thirty plus years now, uh, and so what does it mean? Well, I mean. It probably meant something in 1990 when the last big set of amendments were passed. But now, you know, everybody's sort of going back. I won't say it's quite like parsing the Federalist Papers, but it is, you know, what does that mean? What is an adequate level of air air pollution protection? What is, you know, are we allowed to regulate individual? power plants or systems of power plants. I mean, the Supreme Court just this week was talking about these issues, trying to figure out what that law actually says when it comes to, you know, today's technology and how you can use regulation to implement that. And, you know, maybe the, I mean, I think the better answer, frankly, is for Congress to go back and actually say what it means. I think that's the answer in a lot of cases.
1: I Uh, I agree with you there.
0: (laughs) But short of that, right, we're kind of, presidents are going to use their the tools they have to try to put their preferences in place. And so I don't think we should be too surprised that they are kind of legislating in that regard. Well, we can't call it that, but we, and indeed, that same case, right, is being held up as a sort of, you know, is all of this a violation of some non delegation doctrine, uh, if such a doctrine exists? But certainly we can, it does make some intuitive sense that, you know, the. Congress shouldn't just say to the president, you do it all, right? I think we we shouldn't take our eyes off the fact that Congress has, uh, you know, ignored its own responsibilities in a lot of policy areas for a lot of time.
1: Yes. And they are Article 1 of the Constitution last time I checked. They are. So, yeah. Um, So, Andy, are you writing the book on implementation or what are you working on now?
0: (sighs) Yeah, well, I'm actually working with uh, with Josh Kennedy on a on an APSA paper about implementation, so we'll see where that goes. Uh, I have, you know, after being distracted, I, I started out by mentioning this was my spinoff project. You know, this was supposed to be easy because I had the data. I just came across it, and then of course, not so easy. Uh, but uh, so I do actually want to get back to the larger uh, institutional history of OMB. Um, because it really, I think, is a way of gauging presidential interaction, presidential management, presidential control of the executive branch um, through a, a constant lens over, you know, sort of the 1921 to 2021 period. And so, uh you know that book was supposed to be done years ago, and I'm actually kind of glad that we didn't finish it because the Trump administration is a really interesting data point, uh, as is the sort of attempts by the Biden administration to snap back, if you will, to maybe an older model, but but with some, you know, I think they they learned something. Presidents learned something from their predecessors. Um, you know, Trump executive orders got really long, as I alluded to before. They were sort of more rhetorical than um than what had come before. Biden's are kind of rhetorical too. You know, there's a lot of speech making sort of shoved into executive orders, which is something that, you know, in earlier days OMB really tried to stop from happening. That wasn't seen as, you know, something there's a, a great memo. Does this smell like an executive order? Um <laughs> and uh you know That kind of stuff didn't, but now apparently it does. Uh, So, you know, we have institutional change as well as continuity. Um, So, yeah, that's that project I want to stick with. Um, And as you say, implementation, I think, is an interesting way to go. There was this whole wave of, you know, books about implementation generally back in the late 60s, early 70s. you know, I'm teaching a policy implementation seminar right now, and we're looking at some of that stuff and some of it's useful and some of it's kind of tedious. Um, and you know, but all of it is, you know, you know, if I had to sum up an entire, you know, subfield of, 15 years of hard work by smart people. It's it's complicated, yes, right? That's the entirety of it, uh, which is true, but not necessarily <laughs> amazingly helpful. I'm not sure that I'm gonna be able to solve, but I would be curious to know whether presidential management efforts have an effect on implementation. I mean, one of the things we think about when we think about power is, you know, that classic definition of, uh, of power that A, you know, A has power over B. If A can get B to do something that B didn't want to do or wasn't going to do. So okay, well, what if B says to A, "Why don't you order me to do this, right? Here, I'm going to write the executive order for you. You issue it, right? And then so I will B, do it. And then I'll do it. So I mean, if that's true, right? There's there's something going on, but is that power? You know, B is doing what B asked A to order B to do. Uh, and so that's, again, that's not a, that's not part of our traditional definition of power.
1: Even no, it's though, transactional. You know,
0: yeah. So there's sort of a, um, you know, we would expect, I think, that, you know, orders that were written by the bureaucracy are more likely to be carried out than those that were written by the executive branch. That's what our uh, APSA paper is going to try to track. Um, again, how much data we'll be able to get, and maybe we can only test it on some kinds of orders, um, you know, that have a very, of a more public, you know, output in mind, like write a report or something. I mean, those are not very exciting orders. That's the problem. The ones you want are the ones that are harder to track. So yeah, but implementation, I think, and its implications for presidential power uh, is an interesting you know, way to go. Um, you know, this is sort of reinvigorated my interest more broadly in, you know, sort of the the executive, you know, president as chief executive in all the different ways in which they try to exercise that authority. Um, and that, you know, goes back to, you know, again, uh, earlier work on the administrative presidency, you know, the role of appointments, as well as, you know, process of so people and process, I guess you could say. Um, and I think there's, you know, just a lot to help A lot to do um, to help us understand, you know, both the, you know, again, the impact of these orders ultimately over time.
1: Well, I hope when the next book comes out, if it's about OMB or implementation, you'll come and speak with me about it on the New Books Network.
0: I would uh, be delighted to do so, and I hope we will not be too elderly when that occurs.
1: I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Andrew, Andrew Rudalevich for speaking to me today about by executive order, bureaucratic management, and the limits of presidential power, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. I assume this is available at the Princeton University Press website. Indeed. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence that you would like to give a shout out to?
0: That is a good question. Uh, I have not yet seen it on a physical shelf, which is depressing, but uh, we have been I in COVID time. So we have been too. Yeah. I have uh, uh, the Gulf Gulf of Maine books in beautiful okay. Brunswick, Maine, you know, might be a good place to check out. They will order and ship wherever in the country. So great. Uh, and, they're, and they're good people.
1: All right. Thanks for joining me today, Andy.
0: <laughs> a real pleasure. Thank you very much.